My name is Cody. I'm an ICU travel nurse, and I've created this podcast, Care Made Critical, to tell you a story. When you and your loved ones have to come to ICU, there's a point where we, as the medical providers, we take over, and you or your family member, you're asked to wait in the waiting room. Then there's a gap of time. And in that gap of time lies life or death. I'm honored to be in this gap of time. I'm honored to have shared this gap of time with both those who've lived and those who've died. I'm honored to share the difference between what people think happens versus the reality of the situation. How thin is the line between life and death? These are their stories. In this podcast, I will not state any specific hospitals, patients, date of birth, dates, or any other personal identifiers. I will only state broad information so listeners can paint their own mental picture. this season, I want you to join me in one of our nation's top trauma hospitals, one of the nation's highest gun violence cities. Get ready for the raw, the gripping, and the grisly stories. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Chicago. Twenty-five-year-old John Doe, diagnosed with gunshot wound times five to the abdomen. This is his story. So, upon getting report, um, I'm walking onto the floor, and as I pass one patient's room, there's armed uh, police officers outside the room. And when you see that, you know that the nine times out of ten, the patient that's in the room was, um, or when they leave, will be going to court or jail. Uh, it could be an inmate that that's already in jail that's coming over for, you know, just treatment. Or it could be a civilian who um, who's waiting for uh, trial when they when they get better and they're stable and leave leave the hospital. So in this situation, it was the latter. Um, I had a 25 year old male and he was diagnosed with gunshot wound to the abdomen times five. And he had a interesting story, uh, kind of on the floor. We referred to him as Hollywood because his story actually made the news at the time. And what happened was a uh, little history. He was arrested at some point um, the the night before, and um, the police officers searched him. They found nothing. Well, when they were actually in the cop car driving to jail or driving to you know lock him up, he had a gun hidden somewhere. He pulled the gun out. He shot the gun at the cops. He hit one cop in the cheek. The other cop 
turned around and returned fire and shot him five times in the abdomen. Um, and now he's here with us. So naturally, uh, me wondering, first off, how do you not catch this guy with the gun? How do you search him? And he still has the gun on him. That is an epic fail. Number two, if I'm the guy, how do you shoot the police officer and like just hit him in the cheek? Because you have to know in a situation like that, it's like a sudden death situation. You shoot, you miss, you get shot five times, you know? So that was actually going through my head when I was getting a report. And uh, upon doing uh, drug screening when he came in, he had a little cocaine in his system, a little oxy, and a little, um, I believe it was ecstasy as well. So he had some uppers, he had some downers, and obviously the combination had him out of his mind. So... You know, here he is now, and uh, medically, he was, for the most part, stable, um, acute-wise. He was extubated earlier in the day, um, which means the breathing tube, they they pulled it out, so he was pretty much breathing on his own, which short-term, that was probably the biggest risk I was facing this shift. Uh, The biggest risk when you're extubated is, you know, um, respiratory failure, going back into respiratory failure. Uh, that's that's just a gap of window where you know you're. You can things can go either way. You can continue to breathe on your own and keep progressing and getting better, or you can have a major setback and um, we'll have to reintubate you. Uh, in this situation, he was doing he was doing fine. He was breathing on his own, no oxygen. Uh, that that part we were out the woods on. Um, Due to the the gunshot wounds, he uh, he was paralyzed from the waist down. One of the uh, bullets did hit the lower part of his spine. He could move his upper extremities, but um, he couldn't feel his lower extremities, which uh, and and it also created a few other problems. He couldn't he couldn't he couldn't have a bowel movement on his own, so they had to place an ostomy, which is pretty much a hole in your uh, abdomen, which instead of pooping through your butt, you're pooping into a bag. And we just pretty much changed that out. We'll just dump it when it's full. And also, he could not urinate on his own either. So he would have a chronic Foley, which um, which would, with having a chronic Foley, definitely puts you at a higher risk of infection. So... Um, you know, dealing with him on a, you know, just coming in and talking to him, he was he was pretty pleasant. Um, was he remorseful? I don't think, you know, really that. I don't think with him, reality really set in on the long-term effects of, um, you know, his actions. Uh, I do think there were some psych issues, uh, some underlying psych issues. He would kind of come and go. He would talk randomly. Uh, it was hard for him really to stay on task. I'm not sure if it was from prior drug use or, you know, real deal psych issues. But he was never rude. He was always uh, he was always pleasant. So um, when it comes to his um, his short term, like I said, uh, biggest thing was just going back to respiratory failure. We were pretty much out the woods uh, on that. And when it came to long term issues. That was more pressing on them. Uh, obviously, just depending on, you know, who would take care of him, how he would get care. 
physically, um, the biggest issue when you have a patient who is paralyzed from the waist down is skin breakdown. You know, when you're not moving, when you're, um, you know, obviously sitting in one spot for a long time, immobile, you you definitely run the risk of skin breakdown, and then that can go into um, wounds, and then, then wounds can turn into infection, and it can be a cycle of back and forth in the hospital, which is a very which are very it's a very high risk. Uh, secondly, uh, I covered the Foley. Um, whenever you have a, a foreign substance in your body, which that's what a Foley is, it's it's a rubber thing that's in your penis, in your bladder to help you pee. It pretty much is as you make urine, it puts it out. You don't have to push it out. So whenever you have a foreign substance in your body, automatically you're at a higher risk for infection. And also with his ostomy, um, you know, he has an opening to his body. When your skin is a covering to your all your inside organs and your skin is actually one of the best barriers to infection. When you have ostomy, obviously it's open to air with, uh, you know, when the bag's not on it, which, you know, which also, which also increases your risk of infection. And lastly, uh, it's the obvious. I mean, you know, it has to be on his mind. What happens after he leaves here? Um, from how I'm looking at it, it, it is, it doesn't get much better. I mean, He's paralyzed from the waist down. So I don't see a scenario when you shoot at the police that you don't get time in prison. So that's a huge, that's a huge thing that I was thinking, you know, thinking up for him. I'm not going to say I felt sorry for him. I didn't feel sorry for him. I was just kind of looking at the facts. I mean, he is, uh, he's, he has to deal with the uphill battle for sure. I mean, it had me thinking of decisions decisions you make you know it takes a moment to make a decision it takes a moment to pull a gun and shoot and now the effects of that one decision is clearly is clearly going to change the life of this 25 year old for forever Hey, I just want to take a quick break to thank everyone for listening. If you're listening and you haven't subscribed yet, please feel free to do so. You can uh, find Care Made Critical on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Music, and Amazon. If you've already subscribed, thank you. And hey, please continue to listen and enjoy. Thirty-three-year-old John Doe, diagnosed with gunshot wound times six. This is his story. So we have a thirty-three-year-old male. Uh, he's diagnosed with gunshot wound times six. And this was a this was an interesting story. Um, a little history on him. He uh, he tried to break up a fight. Uh, it was two guys was beating a woman. Uh, maybe it was domestic violence. Who knows? But he acted. You know, he didn't know no party involved, and the two guys got the best of him, 
and one of the guys uh, stood over him and shot him point blank six times. And, um, you know, four of the bullets hit him in the abdomen, two hit him in the chest. Um, and, I mean, his, his odds of recovery were terrible. He, you know, he had to have two chest tubes placed in his chest. And what chest tubes pretty much do is they're used to evacuate any excess blood, air, or fluid in the chest space. Uh, when you have too much buildup of fluid or air or blood in your chest space, it puts too much pressure on the lungs and it, it can fill the lungs. Um, one of the rounds that hit him in the abdomen, uh, it actually caused his liver to swell and then to explode. And the issue with that was when they first went in for surgery, they didn't actually see the damage to the liver yet because it took time to swell. Once they closed them up, put him in the, um, you know, he came to ICU. Then he's, you know, he started having severe uh, abdomen pain, severe abdomen pain. And his liver swelled and it pretty much exploded. Uh, we had to get him back to surgery. He had to have emergency surgery. They opened him back up. They, um, you know, pretty much closed the liver back up. And then um, uh, issues that came from that was he became septic. And what that pretty much is, is your body's response to a severe infection. And his infection, his infection was extremely severe. It, it almost cost him his life. His blood pressure fell. We, we had no idea at the moment what was going on. You know, he was fine. He was getting better. And next, you know, his blood pressure bottoms out, which is also a response to uh, septic shock. So. Um, we, we put him on pressors. What, what that is, is pretty much critical drugs to keep his blood pressure up while we try to fight infection. You know, it's pretty much doing two things at once, trying to fix the symptoms of, trying to fix the symptoms plus what's causing the, what's causing the problem. But we got to keep his blood pressure up long enough to take care of the infection, which, I mean, we were vigorously treating around the clock. And, um, have you know all this is happening within the time span of 14 to 15 hours you know he came in a couple hours before my shift started and you know as my shift progressed things you know one thing came up after another after another after another and so the biggest issues you know that we're facing right now he was intubated you know, he was the, the vent was breathing for him so we were watching out for respiratory issues Whenever you have a patient with chest tubes, it's it's an increased issue with respiratory just because you want to make sure that the tubes stay padded, make sure that they're not clogged up, they're not kinked, because any any kink and any any clogging of the tubes can back up fluid or um, blood into the into the chest space. So that was an issue, and the obvious issue, you know, keeping the blood pressure up and taking care of the infection. So um, the antibiotics began to work. Um, in time, the infection got a little better. His blood pressure started responding a little better. Um, and um, that, that was a good thing. So he, um, he started to turn the corner a little bit uh, from the moment I got a report to about eight hours, nine hours into the shift. Uh, he started to turn the corner uh, for the better. And... Um, we kind of got out of the acute phase. We kind of, you know, we're kind of looking at now more of uh, long-term effects, which uh, in this case, his was obviously his liver. 
I mean, we can, you know, you can deal with the chest. You can, um, uh, once he gets off the vent, you know, the lungs will, will do better. Pretty much when we fix all the, you know, getting the fluid off of him, getting, um, you know, the blood from his chest, the lungs are going to fix themselves. But when it comes to the liver, and being that the liver is so important, it's pretty much the body's filter, if you will. Um, it, it filters all the toxins out. And with the liver not functioning properly, it backs up the liver. Um, if you see somebody with, you know, really, uh, I would say, a dirty skin type of complexion, it's, it's you see alcoholics who they return, re retain a lot of their, a lot of their toxins. Um, so, with him, his liver was repaired, but uh, it with with seeing how the liver is really going to react to it, that was just a time thing, and um, you know we it's just a we'll pretty much just see how that how that works as as time goes on. So, with this case, you know. That night we made it out. You know, we were he was okay, he was stable for the most part. He was still intubated, he was still, you know, uh dealing with infection, things like that. But he was he was stable, he was alive. And um I remember actually uh came back and um I had him again maybe two or three weeks later and he was a lot better. I mean, I was completely shocked when I saw him um you know, he chest tubes were gone. Uh, his abdomen was closed up. He was breathing on his own. Uh, the liver was doing well. Um, and I remember he actually shook my hand and we talked. And he was, you know, it's good to see some of the cases end well. You know, especially how this one began. He was just a person who was trying to take up for somebody else. Someone he didn't even know. And personally, that... Um, it got me thinking, you know, what would I have done? Um, it's, it's one thing to put yourself in harm's way for a loved one or for a dear friend or, you know, a family member. But to literally do it without thinking for someone you don't know, someone who could really never repay you for, you know, whatever, that's, to me, that was very thought-provoking. You know, um, I would think I, you know, would do the same, but I don't know. I'm not fooling myself. I don't know. Um, so, yeah, it had me thinking, you know, what what would I really do? What would I have done? You know, um, and what would you do? Would you do the same? It's, it's something to really think about. You know, when, when you see the actual effects of some of the de decisions, when you see some of the effects good or bad you know what what would you do if you're in the same shoes i would like to take a quick break to give a huge shout out to all my listeners um i want to thank each and every one of you for taking the time to listen uh, for taking the time to subscribe, to follow, uh, to share. I deeply appreciate it. Um, if any of you haven't had a chance to subscribe yet, please. Uh, Care Make Critical is available on every um, major podcasting platform. So spread the word, tell someone, 
and continue to listen and enjoy. Thank you. Twenty-three-year-old Jane Doe diagnosed with respiratory failure. This is her story. So we have a 23-year-old female. Um, when she came in, she actually came in through the emergency room. And um, her mom brought her in, and she was just having um, some trouble breathing. Nothing major. She was walkie-talkie. Came in. They checked her blood, her blood pressure, oxygen. Both were decent. Her her oxygen was a little low in the um, 88 to 90 range. Now, a picture-perfect oxygen level would be 100, but um, you know, 90 isn't terrible. Uh, so they didn't even send her to ICU. They sent her to the floor, which we call it med surge to floor. Um, and sometime throughout the day, her oxygen got a little bit worse. Uh, when I went back through the history, when I got her in ICU, her oxygen never really fell under 87, um, 8602. So she came, when she was on the floor, she was on maybe two to three liters of oxygen. And when she transferred down to ICU, uh, the doctor put her on BiPAP. And, you know, let me, so what BiPAP is pretty much, you see it more with, uh, more severe respiratory failure cases. Uh, usually when someone's on BiPAP, their oxygen, oxygen level is more in the high 60s, low 70s. They're actually having, you can visibly see them having trouble breathing. Um, they're labored. Um, and what BiPAP usually uh, is also for if the patient is retaining CO2. The, 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 the BiPAP has a way of blowing the CO2 off. That's what we call it. So in, when your body has too much CO2, you go into you know, severe respiratory failure and things go bad from there. But with her, her labs were fine. Her CO2 levels were fine. Her oxygen level, her blood was fine. She didn't have any fluid on her lungs. That's another um, indication for using BiPAP. You can, when, when a patient has fluid on their lungs, it's, it's good to use there. But with her case, she had none of that. And um, so, yes, the night was going on. She was on BiPAP. She was doing great um, when I would go in there to, um, you know, help her use the restroom. She would turn, move, all that was fine. When she took her meds, she would drink water. I would take the mask off of her. And so another thing about BiPAP, it's a, a mask that's pretty much on your face. You can Google BiPAP and you can pretty much see that the mask covers the face and it's strapped to the back of the head. So if you're claustrophobic, it can, it can definitely be very, um, it can be a, a troublesome experience, but she was handling it well. Uh, she was in good spirit. She was nervous, but I pretty much just kept her encouraged throughout the beginning of the shift. Um, when her mom dropped her off or brought her to the ER due to, you know, the COVID pandemic, she couldn't stay. So, uh, I talked to her, I called her mom at the beginning of the shift, uh, when she came down to us and kind of updated her that, Hey, you know, she is coming to ICU. She is stable. We're just going to 
have closer monitoring, just um, just more for precautionary reasons. When you have a patient on BiPAP, you don't have them on the floor just because BiPAP is continuous uh, oxygen. And we won't, we won't, you want more intense, um, more intense, uh, we, we need to watch her closely. So uh, the night's going fine. And uh, the doctor comes by, he sees that her oxygen is doing well. She's tolerating BiPAP well, she was sleeping. And so then he made the decision to switch her from BiPAP to high flow, which is is uh, understandable decision. She's tolerating BiPAP well. Um, let's give her less oxygen and see how she responds to that. And pretty much the hierarchy of your oxygen in layman's terms, you have your your BiPAP. That's like I said, it's very severe. If you're not tolerating BiPAP, the next step is pretty much intubation. So that kind of gives you a picture on how serious BiPAP is. Now, if you're doing very well with BiPAP, then we'll try high flow, which is still a lot of oxygen, but it's not near as invasive. Um, it's just pretty much nasal cannula in your nose. So, and also feel free to Google by or um, high flow oxygen. So you can kind of picture it um, on the patient's face. So we put her on that and she, she, she was a little nervous. Uh, she was, she had some anxiety and her oxygen dropped to maybe, uh, I would say lowest 85, 86. Um, and so from my standpoint as the nurse, I'm looking at, you know, maybe this is a new set of asthma. She was neg, you know, she was COVID negative. That was a good thing. And, um, like I said, from my standpoint, you know, looking at her labs, looking at her blood work, looking at her oxygen, you know, I have been with her for the last six to seven hours. She was tolerating BiPAP well. We switched her to high flow. She deset it a little bit to, like I said, 8586. So, you know, with my knowledge of nursing, with dealing with patients, with dealing with oxygen, you know, just put her back on BiPAP. If she's not tolerating less oxygen, just give her a little bit more. So the doctor and the respiratory therapist was in the room. And uh, so I stepped out. I went to uh, my other patient's room who was, he was, you know, way more severe. He was intubated and I needed to take care of some things with him. And I was leaving her in the hands of the doctor and, uh, you know, RT, which, you know, which was fine. So I'm in my other patient's room and out of nowhere, the doctor yells, you know, you know, that he needed help. So I go back in her room and she's still in the bed. She's fine. But he says that we need to go ahead and intubate her. And that threw me for a loop because in no medical, you know, standards and no, I've been in nursing going on five years. I've worked at several different hospitals. I've traveled nurse several different places and I've never seen a standard of care where you're going to intubate a patient with their O2 that, that, that high. And, um, it was unbelievable because I'm going to explain intubation. Okay. You probably hear it all the time. You probably see it on TV. When you put the body to sleep, which that's what we do. We give them sedatives and we, we paralyze the body, two different medications, two different things. You do not know how the body is going to respond to it. And you don't know if that patient, if you don't, you don't know if that person it's going to wake up in their right mind and to jump to the most invasive method. You know, it 
it blew my mind and I looked at it from so many different angles in that moment. This girl's 23 years old. You know, she, from what I got about her nature when, you know, just being with her that throughout the shift, you know, she don't seem like she was from the, the nice parts of town. She doesn't, you know, she wasn't the most educated on what was going on. I was, you know, kind of trying to educate her, but not give her too much at one time just due to her being in the hospital. But, you know, I saw absolutely no medical reasoning for that. And when, you know, so when the doctor said, you know, we're going to intubate, when I tell you in that moment, it was like a punch to my stomach because I'm seeing all this happen. And I'm also seeing that there's really no one there to defend this girl. There's really no one there to be like, hey, why? And I asked the doctor why. I was like, you know, look, slow down. What? And, and the doctor was a resident. He wasn't a attendant. He was a resident. I was at a teaching hospital. And, you know, you know, I was just like, you know, why? What's going on? And he pretty much said that it's to prevent what could happen. And once again, I've been in a lot of hospitals. I've, I've been around a lot of nursing and since when do you go to the most invasive procedure to possibly prevent what could happen or what could not happen? You know, so in my thinking, you know, like I said, I didn't go to the, you know, nicest medical, you know, nursing school, none like that. But why wouldn't you just put her back on the BiPAP, see how she responds to that and see if she can recover on her own. Give the body a chance to fight for itself instead of just trying to take over. And, you know, you know, we she's terrified at this point because you have a bunch of people in her room now. She's thinking that she's going to sleep. She's thinking that, you know, it's she's just going to sleep to the next morning. Now everybody's rushing in and she's like, what's going on? She's starting to cry. I'm trying to hold her hand because I did not have the authority to say, no, we can't do this. You know, I did not have the power. I did not have. I could not protect that girl. And that's what haunted me even days and weeks, even to this moment that haunted me that I was responsible for her and I could not protect her from the powers that be. And we, we intubated her, you know, he put her to sleep and, you know, at first things were going fine. And, the shift went on and, you know, she was asleep. She was intubated. You know, the, the machine was breathing for, you know, once again, why, why, why not let her breathe on her own? And sometimes what I've seen with, you know, certain providers, what they put in their charts and what they type up is the reasoning behind why they're doing what they're doing. Don't justify what's actually happening. You know, you can kind of titrate your words and you can put, certain things on paper that could that could justify reasoning that really did not exist. And, you know, she, you have a 23 year old girl. She is from outside of coming to this hospital. She was healthy. She, you know, had no other underlying issues. I looked all of it up. She had no underlying issues. She had no, there was no, justification that myself the charge nurse the other nurses could see like why is this patient intubated 
And when the nurses came in the next morning, everybody on the floor was like, okay, why is she intubated? What, what happened? Did she, did she desat? And I'm like, no, none of that happened. She was walkie talkie. And the reasoning that the doctor gave to intubate this young, young girl was to prevent something that could possibly happen. And, you know, I get off work and I, I mean, I literally couldn't sleep the whole day. I couldn't sleep and I was off the next night. So I called back to the hospital and I, I talked to the um, to the charge nurse. And, you know, she started back breathing on her own. So when they tried to take her off the vent, she desat it and she coded. And they could not get her back. And, you know, words... Words cannot express the emotions I was feeling in that moment. And I literally, I, I left. I, I'm i not going to call it a nervous breakdown. I'm not going to call it, you know, you can call it whatever. But I, I, I could not function in a medical sense for at least the next, you know, seven to ten days. I, I could not understand the reasoning behind what we did. And to have someone lose their life over a decision... You know, that wasn't even made by them. It was made by someone who was supposed to have their best interest in mind. That to this day, I I still think of that. In this, um, in this week's meaningful moment segment, what I really want to bring to the attention of just a lot of people in general are the power of our decisions and how they literally shape each and every one of our futures and how we make decisions every day that, that affects tomorrow. And if that, you know, if we were mindful of that, if we were really conscious of our, you know, just everyday decisions and the gravity of it and the weight of it. And especially if you are in a position where you're a parent or you are a, a in some type of leadership role, that your decisions, you know, don't even just affect you. They also affect someone else. So, you know, what I really want to press on, you know, people's minds and just take with you, if I can leave you something to take with you, would be the power of your decision. And if, you know, whatever spectrum you're on, you know, if if you're in a situation where you, you become very emotional or you're in a very charged situation, think, think of how this decision is going to affect next week. If you can live with that, then do it. But if the decision is just going to feel good right now and it's going to screw you over next week, don't do it. Think for a second. And, you know, try to make a habit. If we all, all of us are in this, myself, everybody's in this, if we can make a habit of making good decisions make a habit of making good decisions, then, you know, 
what could our future, what could our world start to truly look like? I would like to give a special shout out. Um, this past week was Veterans Day. And um, I want to take a moment and really thank our veterans. Uh, my father's a veteran. I want to thank him. Um, I want to thank everyone who, uh, who served, has served our country. And I also want to give a special th- uh, thank you, a special shout out uh, for the support to the VA um, the VA hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, thank you for your, you know, the medical staff there. Thank you for what you do. Um, and please, you know, please continue to do it. Thank you. I would like to sincerely thank each and every one of my subscribers followers and listeners in general Um, my motivation behind creating this podcast is to share the stories of a lot of men and women who may never be able to share these stories themselves please feel free to email me with comments or questions um, at cchall at caremadecritical.com once again email cchall at caremadecritical.com also, feel free to follow me on Instagram at c.c underscore hall. Uh, once again, c.c underscore hall. And I'm also on Facebook. Um, please follow my Facebook page, Care Made Critical. Once again, Facebook, Care Made Critical. Thank you once again, and talk to you next week.